Hello, and welcome to the podcast series, Ready, Set, Game, The Rhetoric of Games, a podcast created by Emory University students in David Morgan's Play, Make, Write, Think class. Over the course of the series, we will approach games as operating within the larger media ecology and attempt to diagram the competing forces at work within that landscape. In each episode, we will play and analyze a specific game with an eye toward its rhetorical situation and the role it plays within the broader medium. We'll focus on the way these games encourage players to think in order to move through them and what sorts of decisions the games force us to make. As we probe the underlying rules of game systems and speculate about what's going on underneath the hood, we'll ponder where they are taking us and to what ends. How do these games encourage certain types of problem solving and learning? What sorts of values do they promote? What sorts of new perspectives do we gain in the playing? So buckle up and come play with us. Throughout history, games have been a tool to entertain, engage, and teach. There have been many games created, played, and lost through the years. From the ancient games of Egyptian Senate to modern video games that even incorporate virtual reality, we've come a very, very long way. It's almost impossible to determine what the best game is. With so much subjectivity, answers would vary from specific athletic events to Assassin's Creed to even the game of life, though probably not the board game one. That kind of sucked. Where we can deter from the fallacies of deeming the best is one of the most influential games, chess. About who they think is the best now. Took a while, got the jokers out of the deck now. I'm holding all the cards and just want to play chess now. But he can't be blamed He's only a pawn in that game As demonstrated by those incredible artists, chess is still as prevalent today as during its inception in the 6th century. To better understand how a game can be so important to almost every culture across the world, it's necessary to take a deep dive into what chess is. The level to which chess can be analyzed is almost infinite. In fact, we will even delve into the complex mathematics behind how many chess games could be played. However, in order to begin to rationalize how chess functions as a medium for intellectuals, it's important to start with the basics, the board, the pieces, and the rules. The chessboard consists of an 8x8 grid, 64 squares in a checkerboard fashion, dividing white and black squares. The pieces begin in a predetermined arrangement on opposite sides of the board. There is a white side where the white pieces will begin and a mirror image of the black pieces on the black side. Individual squares are generally referred to through a row and column arrangement oriented with the white side closest to the point of relativity. The columns are described from left to right as ABC until the rightmost column is considered the H column. Rows are described from top up as 1, 2, 3 until the 8th row on the opposite side of the viewer. This gives a direction and name for each square along the entire board, which can only be occupied by one piece at a time. Each player starts with 16 pieces, 8 pawns, 2 knights, 2 bishops, 2 rooks, 1 queen, and 1 king. The goal of the game is for each player to try and checkmate the king of the opponent. Checkmate is a threat, check, to the opposing king which no move can stop or prevent. It ends the game. The two opponents take turns to move one of their pieces to a different square of the board. One player has pieces of a light color, the other player has pieces of a dark color. 
Each piece moves in a specific way with different restrictions and limitations. Kings move one square in any direction, so long as that square cannot be attacked by an enemy piece. Additionally, kings with the help of rooks are able to make a special move known as castling. Queens move diagonally, horizontally, or vertically any number of squares. They are unable to jump over pieces though. They are considered the strongest attacking and defensive piece in the game. Rooks move horizontally or vertically any number of squares. They are unable to jump over pieces. Bishops move diagonally any number of squares. Knights move in an L shape, two squares in a horizontal or vertical direction, then move one square horizontally or vertically. They are the only piece able to jump over other pieces. Pawns move vertically forward one square with the option to move two squares if they have not yet moved. The pawn is the only piece that captures differently from how it moves. Pawns capture one square diagonally in a forward direction. Pawns are unable to move backwards on captures or moves. Upon reaching the other side of the board, a pawn promotes into any other piece but a king. Woo, now that was a lot of material. Here's a clip from Harry Potter. Now what do we do? It's obvious, isn't it? We're gonna play our way across the room. All right, Harry, you take the empty bishop square. Hermione, you'll be the queenside castle. As for me, I'll be a knight. You're welcome. Now, as those two were monotonously describing chess, I couldn't help but note how many different rules there are. The amount of moves, pieces, and squares which are there must mean chess. Without time restrictions is a very long game. Fortunately, a chess game typically follows a generic pattern for its structure. Openings, middle game, and the end game. A chess opening simply refers to the initial moves of a chess game. The term can refer to the initial moves by either side. There are dozens of different openings and hundreds of variations upon the first moves. These vary widely in character from conservative positional play to intense attacking. There are a few common aims in the opening. Development, center control, king safety, and pawn structure. Though it depends on which goal an individual player might be going for, reading the opposition and responding accurately is necessary for the next phase. The middle game, the creatively titled portion between the opening and the end game. While there is no clear division between the middle game and surrounding phases, the bulk of piece development is completed in the opening, so the middle game is where trades, deception, and careful strategy truly come into play. The middle game is the phase of play where memorization of positions and strategy is of least importance while creative thinking and deduction is the most necessary. Since chess pieces begin in a set formation and generally ends with a small number of pieces, those two phases generally constitute a manageable amount of permutations. In contrast, the middle game is when pieces have not yet been reduced in number, but the structure is no longer predictable from the beginning. This leads to an almost infinite amount of arrangements, which makes memorization a futile attempt to master this portion. Here, players seek to make moves that force their opponent to concede a piece or abandon a defensive structure to negate further intrusion. When a player feels their position is more advantageous to the opponent, they can force conflict and seek peace trades. Once the number of pieces has dwindled, or a player is forced to retreat into a sticky situation, the next phase takes place. We're in the end game now. Thanks, Mr. Doctor Strange. Yes, the final portion of chess is aptly described as the end game. The end game, however, tends to have different characteristics from the middle game, and the players have correspondingly different strategic concerns. Due to the rules of pawn promotion, 
the relatively weak pieces now hold incredible importance as there are less obstacles preventing promotion. The king, which has to be protected in the middle game due to the threat of checkmate, can now be utilized as an attacking piece in the endgame. In professional chess, endgames are often avoided since both players recognize the other's proficiency to checkmate them given a certain combination of pieces. Perfect! Now that we've described the game, the pieces, and the structure of how the game progresses, we can delve into the foundations of chess thinking. A brilliant chess player is one who can complete the most rigorous mental calculations. Let's do a basic mental calculation to demonstrate. Ready, boys? Sure am, Sadie. Get ready to be checkmated, Will. Consider a situation as described. There are four pieces on the board. The black king and a white pawn versus the white king and a white pawn. The two kings are two spaces away on the far center left of the board, and both pawns are in the G column on the right side. The white pawn is two spaces from the eighth rank, and the black pawn is one space away from the first rank. If either pawn gets to the opponent's starting rank, they are promoted to a queen, and that side is almost certain to win the game. Obviously, if the black pawn moves first, they win. The question is, what happens if the white pawn moves first? Who wins? Well, it's obvious. The black pawn won last time, so this time it must be the white pawn, right? No, it's still the black pawn. Even though the white pawn moves first, it moves one space away from the 8th rank. Then the black pawn moves to the 8th rank and is promoted, taking the other pawn after the white's next move. Nice, Giovanni. What Giovanni just did is an example of a calculation, or a potential outcome given a series of moves. Then, with this knowledge, a player can take the best move possible given an unexpected outcome. Though this case is a rudimentary example of the calculations chess players make, this is the fundamental basis of chess thinking. When pondering what to do for a move, you have to not only consider what the outcome of a move you make, but what the opponent might calculate given your move. This creates an exponential decision tree of almost infinite ends. However, if you have the mental capacity to go down each stem, you can certainly decide the best possible move given a certain circumstance. This way of thinking forces chess players to consider not only their own decisions, but put themselves in the opponent's perspective and predict how they would respond. There's a reason why chess players are often seen playing against themselves, since playing both sides gives better insight to how opponent might respond to a specific move. Perhaps one of the most explicit examples of probing we've seen in this podcast series so far, chess forces players to be experts at zooming in and examining a potential future. According to numerous studies, chess enhances calculating capacity, verbal skills, and emotional intelligence. The cognitive benefits to chess playing are not due to the consistent practice and studying of positions and piece dynamics, but rather the thought experiment of playing chess. When one starts a game of chess, their normal way of thinking must be modified to the medium of chess. The rules, inhibitions, and structure of chess forces players to empathize and consider their opponent, strategize with an end goal in mind, and take effective action to succeed. These lessons are not only important in chess, but also apparent in the game of everyday life.